This message is from Grace Church, located in Frisco, a suburb of Dallas-Fort Worth. The Grace Church website is gracechurchfrisco.org. Craig Cabanis, the lead pastor, is the speaker for this message. Good morning. Uh, You can take your seats for a moment, because this morning as we sang this musical version of the Creed, we are uh, going to have some folks publicly uh, confess their belief in Christ uh, through baptism. And that is always exciting uh, to have someone identify with Jesus as their Savior. I want to read you a verse this morning, two verses out of Acts 2. Uh, This is on the day of Pentecost when Peter declared that Jesus died for sinners, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day. And uh, that those who would believe in him, who would turn from sin and believe in him, uh, would receive new life. And this is what he said when the crowd heard him preach about Jesus. Now, when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, repent, which means to turn from our sin to the Lord and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. And you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promise. Listen, is for you and for your children and for all who are far off. Everyone whom the Lord, our God calls to himself. And so in this passage of Scripture, uh, the, the God is telling us through Peter's preaching that we are to repent and turn and that we are to receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, the gift of forgiveness, and that we are to be baptized. Now, we're not forgiven by baptism. They're not literally washing away their, their sins when they come out of the water. But their sins were washed away when they believed in Christ, some of them very recently and some a while, a while back. When they believed in the Lord, they were forgiven. And I love this promise, that the promise is for you and for your children. Normally when we have a baptism, we have some adults and some children. Today, it's it's all young people that are being baptized, which is exciting. And the reason I point this out is because I want to point out this, this represents a fulfillment of that scripture. When Jesus says it's for you, I mean, Peter says it's for you and your children, he says that to us as a church. It's for us and for the next generation. And we can't convert the next generation. We can't make them Christians. They're not Christians because of their environment. They must have the Holy Spirit open their heart and give them faith. And they must repent and turn and believe in him. And once they do, and they understand that, and once they do, then it's our joy to baptize them. So this morning, as we hear from several young people and then celebrate their baptism, we're recognizing that they've believed in Christ that they're identifying with his burial, his death for their sins, his burial, and his being raised to new life, and so they have new life as well. So let's celebrate with each one of these as they share their testimony and are then baptized. So uh, our first baptizee, I'm not quite sure how how that would uh, be. My name is Jenna Seachman. I was raised in a Christian home and have attended church for as long as I can remember. I asked Jesus into my life at a young age, and I knew that I loved God, that I needed forgiveness, and I wanted the new life that I had learned about at church and from my parents. For the next several years, my relationship with God was pretty routine. I don't remember having any real struggles. I had no doubt that God cared for me since life was pretty good. As I got older, I noticed some things in my life weren't going the way I wanted. I started to wonder. If God really loved me and heard my prayers, then why weren't things going as I had planned? I I gradually started distancing myself from God. I found it easy to cut my Bible reading time short or, some days, to skip it altogether. Praying wasn't a priority because God didn't really hear me anyway. My schedule was becoming more busy, after all, and I didn't have as much free time. I allowed excuses to distance me further and further away from God, and gradually I became more unpleasant to be around. My mom noticed the change. After, she, after we talked, she said she thought that I was being a fair-weathered friend to God. It seemed that God was only good and worthy of my attention as long as he was answering my prayers exactly as I wanted and when I wanted. When any difficulty arose, I gave him the cold shoulder. At first, I dismissed my mom's suggestion. But when I was alone, I wondered if she was right. Had I made God's love dependent on my circumstances? James 4.8 says, draw near to God and he will draw near to you. So I decided to be honest with God and tell him what I was feeling. I started reading my Bible more often, hoping to hear from him. 
As I read, one verse really stood out to me. That was Romans 8.28, which says, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. Over time, I realized that I really had been a fair-weathered friend to God. Being a Christian doesn't mean that I will live a trouble-free life. In fact, it's just the opposite. I will have struggles, but I know that God is there, working in all things for my good, and that his timing is best. Even when things don't go my way, I know his love for me has been proven on the cross. I am so thankful that Jesus is not a fair-weathered friend to me. No matter how much I disappoint him, he is consistently merciful, loving, and gracious to me. Having a relationship with Jesus is not about what he can do for me and how he can best serve me. It's about what he has already done in dying on the cross for my sins and his resurrection to give me new life. I'm getting baptized today to show that although my faith is sometimes weak, God's love is always strong, and I want to serve him for the rest of my life. We're on now. Sorry, Jenna, that's a bit anticlimactic. <laughs> but you're gracious. Jenna, based on your profession of faith in Jesus, it's our joy to baptize you, our sister, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're buried with Christ through baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. As a child, I always believed in God and never really doubted his existence. When I was four in the middle of the night, I suddenly woke up and called for my parents. I told them I wanted to accept God into my heart. I already knew that God had forgiven my sin and that he died for me, but that night I knew that I wanted to be a Christian and I wanted him to come into my heart. From that point on, I never really doubted that God was real. Whenever I saw the baptisms at church, I always heard them say things along the lines of, I had my doubts about God, and through one big moment, for this specific reason, I realized that all my doubts were wrong, and that he was truly real. I thought that I had to wait for that big catastrophic moment when I realized I was a sinner, and that I was now worthy of baptism. After a while of thinking this, I realized that God had already forgiven me, and that now everyone, not everyone had that big moment in his or her lives. I know that there are going to be hard times ahead, but I want to get baptized now because I want to have today as a marker in time that I can go back to and remember when I am having hard times so that I can remember the path that I chose and not to stray from it. Abby's joined by her dad, Lenny. Um, and so we're all one big happy family here. <laughs> Abby, based on your profession of faith in Jesus, it's our joy and privilege to baptize you, our sister in Christ, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're buried with Christ through baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. Kylie Hallmark. Most of my life, I thought little of the Lord, and I struggled with patience, self-control, and more. For example, I have struggled with showing kindness and love to my younger siblings, and just being that good big sister I have always wanted to be, and I still do. Last year, I began to experience some struggles in life. It was difficult to bring myself to believe that God is who he says he is. As time passed, I began to feel lonely, lost, and scared. I was scared that I wasn't saved, I dreaded the thought of eternity in hell, and I feared God's wrath, which was what I rightly deserved. The holidays that year arrived, and as Christmas came, I prayed hard, for I desperately wanted the gift of God to be saved and to believe. On Christmas Day, I awoke feeling as if a great burden had just rolled off my shoulders, and that day, I knew God was really there. 
that he died for me and that I'm safe because of Jesus. The next time I went to church, I sang at the top of my voice because I was so grateful that God had saved me. And I listened to the sermon with much interest, for I was thirsty for God. The Lord has blessed me with the Holy Spirit, and he helps me with everything I do. God has transformed me, and I am a new person. My parents have noticed great differences in how I act and in what I do, but that is all God. I am a sinner God has saved because Jesus died in my place. I'm getting baptized today to proclaim that I was lost, and now I am found. Kylie, based on your profession of faith in Jesus, we baptize you, our sister, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're buried with Christ through baptism and raised to walk a new life. Hunter Carrier. I've been coming to Grace Church for about a year. Growing up, I've heard stories about the Bible, but I didn't know what it, I didn't know it was more than just a book. I remember my grandparents always having a Bible, but I didn't know who God was. As I got older, I thought evolution made a lot of sense. After someone I loved died, I was convinced God was not real. I started coming to the youth group about a year ago. I started, yeah, I started to be challenged about. I started to be challenged by things I saw in the Bible. Everything I thought was true about God was not being real. Was not being real. Gosh dang. Everything I thought... <laughs> I can't read. I can't read. I don't know. I'm retarded. Um, about God was not being proven wrong. Everything, everyone I saw, everyone was so sure about Jesus, it was making me willing to learn more. At the Rise Up Weekend, my, my mind was convinced. That night during the message, I felt... My worries slowly go away, and my faith, my faith strengthened. There was an invitation for anyone to trust Jesus. I prayed with the others to receive, receive Christ, and later that night I felt God's love in a new way. I'm being baptized today to tell the world that Jesus is my Lord. He died and rose to transfer my sins to him, and he gave me his righteousness. I believed to him. I, be, I belong to him by faith, and wanted to follow him for the rest of my life. It's been awesome to hear Hunter's story and hear some of the questions that he had about the Bible, questions he had about God in general, questions he had about Jesus, and slowly, one by one, through the Bible, uh, a lot of these questions got answered, and then here recently, uh, full commitment, full trust in Jesus. So this is just a joy. Um, So based on your profession of faith, Hunter, it's our joy to baptize you, our brother, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. You're buried with Christ through baptism and raised to walk in newness of life. If you could open up uh, to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2. And uh, if you've been tracking with us, we're working our way through Genesis 1 through 11. We're going to go pretty slow through 1 through 3. And then once we hit chapter 4, we'll start moving because the pace of the, of the text moves a lot faster. What I'm going to do today is exactly what I did after chapter 1. We went through verse, uh, we went through chapter 1 verse by verse, and then I went back and slowed down and looked at one particular section about the creation of man. And today, we've already looked at Genesis 2, 1 through 17, but today I'm going uh, to look at Genesis 2, 15 through 17, so I'm going to look a little specific, and I'm going to kind of look at what have we read so far about work. That's what I'm going to talk about today, your job, God and your job. So let's read Genesis 2, and uh, then we'll, uh, we'll jump in. Genesis two fifteen. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. 
And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that as we read your word today, as we open this up and as we look at what you communicate, even in these first two chapters of Genesis, we pray that you would speak to us. Lord, we are people that need a vision for our lives. Lord, there's some of us in the room right now that lack purpose and direction and, most importantly, faith towards you. Life is just routine and empty for us. And we pray, Lord, that you would expand our hearts and minds with a great and a grand and a glorious vision for our purpose and for our ability to bring you honor. So, Lord, I pray that you would redeem our understanding of work, that you would transfer our vision of things we think are mundane to be able to see them with the glory that, uh, that you have designed for them and for us. Lord, we pray that you would teach us how to commune with you in our work and how to worship you uh, through our work and how to steward the gifts and opportunities and responsibilities you've given us. And most of all, show us Jesus, Lord, who is at work in us. And we pray that by your spirit, you would be working on our hearts today and on our minds. Speak to us in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, the passage I just read to you, one, one author said this about uh, verses 15 through 17. He said there's three things in, chapter, in verses 15 to 17 that are our life. I mean, you find a lot of life in verses 15 through 17. One, there is vocation or work. Two, there is permission. You may eat of every tree in the garden. And three, there is prohibition. You may not eat of this one tree. So the author said there's vocation, there's permission, and there's prohibition. And the church hasn't done real well handling this. Because usually the way the church, and I'm part of the church, I'm not saying out there, in here, usually the way the church handles the Genesis 1 through 3 narrative is you get almost nothing about vocation. You get a little bit about permission, and you get a ton about prohibition. It's all about the God who said you can't. And that is really an imbalanced understanding and reading. And I'm committed that we not be that church. We may have been, I don't know, but I'm committed we not be that church. That we not be the church that everyone is aware only of prohibition and misses, first of all, the open, gracious invitation that God gives to Adam to enjoy all of the garden, all that he provided. God is a great provider and calls us to enjoy his provision. And you can't glorify God if you don't enjoy his gifts. There's nothing spiritual or righteous or holy in denying the things that God has provided and celebrating them. There's a lot of self-righteousness in that, but there's not biblical righteousness. And we're uncomfortable with that, you know. But the garden was a garden of yes and a tree of no. A garden of yes and a tree of no. So we want to understand the prohibition, and we're going to spend a lot of time on it, Uh, We're going to talk about the doctrine of sin in some detail in chapter 3. But before we get there, let's look at what he says about life. There's calling, vocation. There's permission. That's what you're to do for the glory of God with your life. And there's prohibition. There's what you are to avoid. So today I want to look at just this first one, the issue of work. Now, I know the typical line when I say I'm going to preach on work, there's always a class clown who's going to say to me, oh, why is a preacher talking about work? You only work one hour a week. And so what do you really know? And uh, so in my less charitable moments, what I want to say to that guy is that my full-time job is to help and equip you grow and become more like Jesus. And right now, I can't think of a harder job on the planet And there aren't enough hours in the day for me to do that job. So thankfully, that's the Holy Spirit's job. But I would never say that because I'm a loving pastor and and really care for everyone and even the sarcastics. And so I would never say something like that, but but I just did. So... uh, But I want to talk about your work, and really the distinction I would like to make today is that your work and my work uh, really are are not different 
in, in, uh, at the heart of them at all. So what do we mean by work before we look at this? What I'm thinking about, we could talk a lot about different kinds of work. We could talk about service uh, in the church. We could talk about your role in marriage. We could talk about your role as parents. Uh, we could talk about volunteer work. But what I want to talk about today is uh, primarily what, where does most of your time go? So if you're a student, that's your primary job. You may have a part-time job as well, but that's your primary job. Uh, If you're a stay-at-home mom, that's your job. That's your primary job. So everything I'm saying today applies to you. Everything I'm saying to the student applies to you. If you work part-time or full-time outside, you know, in the marketplace or work from your home, whatever it is, uh, that is what I'm talking about. So let's look here in the first couple chapters and see what we learn. Here's the first idea, the first truth in Genesis 1 through 2. God works. It's the first truth. God works. Look at the first verse of, of the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, look at chapter 2, verses 1. He creates, verse, chapter 2, verse 1, Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. The first thing we learn about God in the Bible is that he's a worker. We learn other things. He's eternal. He's there. He's the creator. We learn other things. But the first thing we learn in verse 1 is that God's a worker. God is doing work, and he rests from his work on the seventh day. He, He demonstrates that in the first chapter, as he is creating over six days. As he is creating during this time, he is bringing order to the universe. But what we learn from the fact he does this in seven days is he is bringing order to time as well. He is ordering time. That's one of the primary lessons to learn from the chapter, which is actually, I think, more important than the length of the days, is to understand what is, what is it God is, why is he acting in this time period this way? Because he could have snapped his fingers, spoken, and everything was ex- existed. But he is ordering time, and he is teaching that we are to work six days, and we are to rest a seventh day following his model. And we get that in the law in Exodus. We actually, he actually says that. That's a command that you, that the Sabbath day is holy. It's actually a command later, but here it's a pattern. So it, it, it is, it is uh, God is one who works. Now, he doesn't just create and go into retirement and not do any more work because God is still at work. He's not creating like he initially did, but he is still overseeing his creation. Psalm 121 says, he will not let your feet be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Behold, he who keeps Israel will never slumber nor sleep. So God is keeping his people and that's work. Look back at verse 15, which we looked at at the beginning. The Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and keep it. His work was to keep. Well, who's that modeled after? God, who keeps his people, who keeps Israel, who will not slumber, who will not sleep. So God is working right now, keeping us. Hopefully he's keeping you awake, but he's keeping us right now, and he is working in our lives. So God is still a worker. God works. Number two, God created us to work. God created us to work. He is a worker. Verse tw- uh, chapter 1, verse 27. I'm doing a survey of what we've seen so far. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them, and God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. So we are created in God's image. And when we, t- we did a whole message on what that means. But as a reminder, it means, uh, it means that God's relational, and so are we. We relate with God. Uh, it means that uh, not, not only is God relational, but God is, uh, uh, that God has re- gives responsibilities to us. We're to take dominion. So by virtue of being an image bearer of God, we are to take dominion over the creation. So we have responsibilities. But there's also resemblance. There are things about us that resemble God, made in his image. Sometimes we say he's the spitting image of his dad to a kid. So uh, in that way, God is rational. God communicates. God thinks. God has moral discernment of right and wrong. So in all those ways, we are in his image, and God works. 
God works. We meet it in the first verse of the Bible. So we work as God works. Now, it's not just that we're created in his image and we know we're called to work by that, but the the Bible tells us more than that. In in chapter 2, verse 5, when no bush of the field was yet in the land and no small plant of the field had yet sprung up, for the Lord God had not caused it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. So God creates, and before before the vegetation begins to grow, that there's no man to work it. There's no man to irrigate off the rivers and streams so that the crops will grow. He created the ground to be worked and kept from the beginning. So there was no man created yet to do that. Now, what does the next verse say? Verse 8, and the Lord planted a garden in, in Eden, in the east, and there he put man whom he had formed. So he creates this garden, he puts man there, and out of the ground the Lord made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Back to 15, where we started at the beginning. And the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden to work it and to keep it. So, we're image bearers, but the, we, we're not just workers because we bear God's image and he's a worker. There's more to it. God creates, and then God creates this special garden, and he puts man in this garden. There's no one to keep it yet, so it has not been growing. He hasn't, it hasn't been raining on it yet, but he puts man in this garden to work. Now, he is in Eden. Eden means delight or paradise, And the garden is in Eden. So this garden is a separate area in the land of paradise, a separate area in the land of delight. And now when we think garden, don't think three rows of sorry-looking vegetables in your backyard that all die when it hits 100 degrees in June or whatever. Don't think of that. But think of the word garden means kind of walled off, separated, fenced in. So it is this special area in paradise that is lush with all kinds of trees that are good to look at, is what he says. They're beautiful to look at. So he's not just a utilitarian God. Just get your work done. It's a beautiful environment. Uh, it is a special place. There are likely trees for foliage or trees for shade, trees for fruit, paths, pools, streams. Uh, and God built all this and put man in there. Now get this, God built the garden and put man in there to work. Man didn't chase his dream, fulfill his destiny, and whatever title's on a bestseller about your job right now. But he, he didn't say, man, you go figure it out. He created an environment and placed man in there and then uh, put him in the garden to work it and keep it. He prepares a spot and then he assigns Adam a task. He gives him a purpose. He gives him a role. He gives him a clear calling, we could say. Adam's calling is to live life in this garden and to work and to keep the garden. That is his calling. What is a calling? I didn't look it up. I don't know what the definition of a calling. But in this situation, here's what I would say a calling is. A meaningful, assigned responsibility to serve God and to serve others. A meaningful, assigned by God, prepared by God, responsibility to serve God and others. It is a stewardship. That is a responsibility of something that he is managing and overseeing for God. We read earlier, he has a responsibility to take dominion of this garden. He is to take dominion in this area. He is to be fruitful, verse 27 of chapter 1, 28. He is to be fruitful in this area. He is to subdue this area area. His calling is to take dominion, to be fruitful, to be responsible, to multiply, to serve God and the others who will be coming. It's just him at this point and to serve others in this garden paradise that God has prepared him and called him to. And so this is, this is, this is huge when you think about this sense of call that Adam has, this responsibility. Now the word call is the same word uh, where we get our word vocation. Vocation is from the Latin word, the Latin verb, which means to call. So a vocation is a calling, and Adam has a vocation 
that is clearly his calling. He's about to get another vocation. He's about to, next week we'll see, get another calling, which is that of husband. Um, but he, that's another vocation. But his starting vocation in, the, in this passage is his work. He is called to this job. What is his calling? Well, it is to work it and keep it, to subdue, to cultivate it, to help it to grow, to trim it, to beautify it, to serve God in this. So the ideas we've seen from the text so far, God works, God calls us to work. Number three, work is good. Some people mistakenly think that work is the result of the curse, the fall, that because Adam and Eve sinned, then came work. But that's not true in the Bible. Work is given to man before the fall. He's an image bearer. He's called to work. It's part of his very makeup. And in the garden paradise, he is placed there with no sin, no sickness, no pain, no hurt, no injury, no workers' comp. I mean, it is perfect environment. He is there to work. And that is part of paradise in a perfect world. So paradise is not a hammock, it's hedge clippers, biblically speaking. It really is. It, it is working for the glory of God. It is working, paradise is working with, in this situation with no sin, no worker disputes, complaints, no difficulties, no one getting cheated out of their payment. It is perfect, so we don't work in a perfect world. But work itself is good. Work is not a punishment for sin. Work doesn't come because they sinned. Oh, God said, okay, okay, that's it. 40 hours minimum for you every week for the rest of your life. And if you're a stay-at-home mom, 140 hours a day, forever for you, whatever. He, he doesn't say, no, he had already created work. What, what happens is that, it, that in the fall, work becomes difficult. But before the fall, there is still work, and we are inherently created to work. You know this. If you're here and you're not even a Christian, maybe you're investigating the the teaching of the Scripture. You know this in your own heart to be true. I I believe you know you can look outside and see someone created this. The the outside world speaks not of accident, but it speaks of intentional design and creation. But even this idea of work, even if you're not a Christian, even if you don't believe what I'm reading you today, you still know this to be true. It's the inherent sense of satisfaction you find in a job well done. You're created to work. So it could be something as simple as driving up to your house after you, uh, after you have cut the lawn, manicured the lawn, and you just go, wow, that looks great. Or if you have kids boy, they did a great job. When they get older, that's a promise. For those of you who have little kids, it's, it's great when, uh, when they take care of that. But that, or you make the sale. You've been working it really hard, and finally, we got the sale, and there's a sense of satisfaction in a job well done. You write a paper for your teacher, student, and it's handed back with a bright red A up on top of it, and it says, outstanding paper. There's a sense of, whew, satisfaction in that. You you prepare a meal. You sit around the table. Everyone enjoys the meal and the food. Oh, this tastes so good. Thank you for cooking it for us. There's a sense of satisfaction, especially if somebody else is going to do the dishes. There's a sense of satisfaction if you cooked that at that moment. Here's the converse of that. Some of the most distraught, understandably, distraught, unhappy, depressed, confused people I know are when people lose a job. And it's not just the worry of I don't have enough money for my family. That's huge. But it's also the feeling of what am I here for? What am I doing? Just looking for work, just sort of the feeling of I don't have anything to do. This happens to a lot of retirees who set their whole life so that I don't have to work and I can just sit still. And after about a week or two, they're going crazy. They're going crazy. I I believe there's a time to retire. That is when we're not remunerated for our work. There is a time to retire where you're not paid for your work, but there's never a time to stop working. We're going to be working in heaven, serving the Lord, I believe. 
Uh, so we are, there, there is always work to be done. The, the glory of retirement, if things are provided, you're at a good place. The glory of that is you can have more say in what the Lord is calling you to do, how you can use your time, and you can use it in various activities. And you have the joy of making a contribution and no one having to pay you for it, doing volunteer work, serving others. That's the joy of it, investing in your family and uh, various things like that. So I didn't mean to speak on retirement, different topic. So he, the, the inherent sense of a job well done and the sense of purposelessness. If you're a student, you want to get out of school. You are itching. You are counting the days. It is coming. And for many of you, that's, exci- that's really exciting. But by the third week of June, this is what you're saying. I'm bored. There's nothing to do. It's that purposelessness. Same thing. We're created to work. Work is affected by the fall, but here's what happens at the fall. Work becomes difficult. Look at chapter 3. We haven't read the fall yet, but i got to look ahead just to square our thinking on this topic. Look at chapter 3, verse 17. This is after Adam and Eve has sinned, and this is the curse. And to Adam God said, 317, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, he broke the prohibition, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, and you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken, for you are dust, and you shall return to dust. So the call was, in the day you eat of this tree, you will die. He, doesn't, he spiritually dies right then. He doesn't physically die, but they begin to die. The death process starts, the aging process, and one day he says, you will return to the ground as dust, so you will die. But in the meantime, he says, your war, it's not going to be work in the garden. You're going to have to leave the garden. The ground is going to be cursed, and so now it's going to be sweat of your brow and thorns and thistles. And so the reality is work is created by God. Work is a gift for God. Work is not a punishment for sin, but work is hard because we're in a fallen world. And so unless you are a a landscaper or a gardener uh, for your vocation, for your work, uh, which you may be, but unless that's you, probably the thorns and thistles part doesn't relate as well. But you understand under other things of what it's like to work by the sweat of your brow, to experience frustration, to get tired, to come home from a day and say, I, I just cannot talk to another person. I am just wiped out. And so the fall affects our work. You don't have thorns and thistles, but people don't show up to the job site that were supposed to be there, and you get blamed. Computers freeze, and you lose your unsaved school assignment. Should have used a Mac. But that's going to (laughs) happen. That's going to happen. Your flight is canceled. Your flight is canceled. You were there early, and you're not going to make it for the big presentation that you've been working on for six months. That's thorns and thistles, baby. That is the sweat of your brow. That is the cursed earth. Work is hard. The parts are on back order. And so you can't fulfill the job that you are supposed to do. So you've got nothing to do today because the parts are on back order that you were going to use. The budget is cut. There's not an endless supply. There's a limited supply. So you've got budget cuts. You're bone tired and the deadline remains. The sick baby did not sleep at all last night and yet you've still got to wake up and take care of your family and oversee your house, manage your home, on zero hours of sleep. Why? Because of the fall. Baby slept all night before sin. That was, a, that, that was a great time. So work is good, but work is hard, not because work is bad, but because there, there's the curse of the fall has affected making work difficult, but it's still a gift of God. So God works. God creates us to work. Work is good. Number four, work is sacred. You talking about your job, Craig? No, I'm talking about your job. You talking about you talking about missionaries? You talking about Christian social workers? No, I'm talking about your job. Work is sacred. God created work to be done in his presence and for his glory. He places Adam, verse, uh, where was that? He put the man whom he had formed, verse 8, in the garden. He puts him in this walled off, separated, fenced in, special place of his presence, and he commissions him to serve God by working there. The garden is the place of God's presence with man. 
Did you know, and I didn't know this until this week, in Ezekiel 28, the garden is not called the Garden of Eden. It's called the Garden of God because that's where God was specifically, unusually present to fellowship with man. It was the place of his presence. And we see this. I've got to skip ahead to chapter 3 again. But we see this in verse 8 of chapter 3. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord. Previously, there was no sin. They did not hide themselves. They hung out in the garden. God came walking in. I don't know how that all worked. But God came walking into the garden. His presence was there. So Adam is communing with God while he's working. He's talking to God. He's, he's maybe getting instruction from God. I don't know if he's getting a punch list. I don't know how it all worked. He was taking dominion, so I think he probably created his own punch list, but I don't know. So he's communing with God in this sacred space, and work is part of that. The garden really functions, if you read further in Scripture, the garden really functions as a place of God's presence as a temple. Did you know that when the temple was built later, when the temple was built, there are aspects of the temple that are like the garden. So for instance, on the walls of the temple, there was carved open flowers. There were carved palm trees and the lampstands represented trees as well. And it wasn't just because, well, we kind of wanted to decorate with nature. We're real kind of outdoorsy as, as, as Hebrews. It wasn't, a, it wasn't a design trend of the outdoor era. It was because it reflected the garden. Why? Because once there was sin, they were kicked out of the garden, but God called them to build a tabernacle. And then when they were in the desert and then later a temple where his presence was experienced in an unusual way, again, especially in the Holy of Holies with the priest. So the priest was in the temple interacting with God. Adam is kind of a forerunner of the priest serving when God is present in the garden. And I'm not speaking about the doctrine of God's presence, but if, we, if I did, we'd see we could run this all through the Bible, that it starts with his presence in the garden, then it's represented in the tabernacle, then in the temple, then Jesus, who is very God and very man, John 1, he comes and God tabernacled in our midst. That's what it is. He pitched his tent in our midst. God tabernacled himself in our midst. And then Jesus dies for our sins. He's buried. He's raised on the third day and he pours out his spirit so that his presence presence now indwells us, the new covenant, and his presence is unusually with us as we gather as the body of Christ, his people. And then one day he will come back for us. We will see him face to face. We will be with him in what the Bible describes as a new heavens and a new earth. And there is the tree of life in the new heavens and new earth. It goes from garden to tabernacle, to temple, to the enfleshed presence of God in Jesus, to the poured out presence of God in the believer now, you and me, and among the people of God as we worship, and then one day in glory. So this, this presence of God runs through the whole Bible. We see that. But Adam is, in essence, the, the temple looks back to him. Now, why am I telling you all this? Is this a, a message about God's presence or is it a message about work? It, it's a message about work. But what I want to make clear here is that Adam, in this sacred environment, in this holy space, he's doing landscaping and gardening work with divine implications. He's acting, he's doing manual work, but he is acting as a priest before God. The commentator Wenham in his commentary on Genesis said this, man's labor in the garden is indeed a kind of divine service for it is done for God and in his presence. That's the touch point with Adam. We don't work as he did before sin. We have difficulty. Our work's different. Um, But that's the touch point. It is divine service done for God and in his presence. Now you're talking about pastors? No, I'm talking about you. I'm not talking pastors too. I'm talking about you. That your work is divine service. It is to be done in the presence of God. And that's what work in the Garden of Eden tells us. Now this is in the New Testament. Colossians 3, 23 says, whatever you do, work heartily to make more money. Maybe you may work heartily to get employee of the month. You may, I don't know, work hard. Whatever you do, work heartily. Here's what it says, as for the Lord and not man. In Colossians, Paul is instructing the Christians, you have an employer and you are to honor them or you have employees and you are to bless them. 
you, you are to work uh, and to be a witness and to serve others and to express the love of God on your job, but realize that you're primarily working for the Lord. He is the object of your work. If you're a student, it's not just to get great grades so that you can get into college. I hope that all happens for you. It's not just to get great grades so your parents aren't uh, you know, correcting you about getting poor grades. I, I'd want to see you not get correct. Absolutely. All that stuff. But ultimately, you're learning for the Lord. It's a reasonable act of service, Paul says elsewhere. Yes, you're going to get a paycheck. Yes, you're putting food on your table. But you're doing this for the Lord, ultimately. Yes, you're at home. You're raising children. You're training, discipling, shaping, and forming them but they're not yours. You don't own them. They're God's. You are stewarding them to raise them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, to lead them to be disciples of Jesus. So whatever your work is, it is for the Lord. And as people of the Spirit, we do it in his presence. Yes, it's after the fall. We're not hanging out with God in the garden where he's walking in and we're having that kind of relationship. That comes later in heaven and in new heavens and new earth. But we are in communion with God by his Spirit. We are led by his Spirit. We are people of his Spirit. So the idea that we are doing service for God in his presence, that's exactly what you're doing tomorrow morning. It is. And it doesn't feel like the Garden of Eden. I get it. It doesn't. But God, Jesus is still redeeming our work in the difficulties, in the brokenness, in the, in the physical fatigue, in the frustrations. He's still redeeming it so that we can do it for his glory. It doesn't change the object of our work. It doesn't change the purpose of our work. It doesn't change the intention of our work. The fall doesn't make our work have a different purpose than Adam's. It just makes it difficult. That's the idea. So you are called to your work. You are called before the Lord. You are called to glorify the Lord. You are called to live a life as a follower of Jesus for his glory. That makes your work sacred. It's set apart. It's holy. Now, please hear me, hear me here. Your work is not just holy when you're witnessing on the job. And so he thinks, well, if I'm, yeah, if I'm, if I'm handing out a track or if I'm saying God bless you when they sneeze, if I'm doing something Christian like that, not really, but if I'm, if I'm, if I'm witnessing, then it's work for the Lord. No, I, I hope you witness, but it's not just when you witness. It's not just when you witness that your work is sacred and that it's worship to the Lord. It's not just when you are making more money and you got a promotion and you took all that promoted money, all the promotion that you got, and you lived on the same amount and you sacrificially gave the promotion to fund ministry in the church, to fund missionaries across the world. Now that's when my work was holy. No, not just then. Not when you're just earning money to give. Not just when you're cleaning your house and as you clean your house, you have worship music playing. Not just then. That's, that can be very helpful. I actually recommend that. Uh, but not just when the worship music's playing. When you work, you are created for work. It is your calling. It is your nature as an image bearer. And the work itself, if it's honest work, I mean, obviously there are some jobs that you cannot do for the glory of God if you're breaking the law or something. It's got kind, of, kind of a job. I think we know that. I don't have to go into all that. But your job, if it's for the Lord, you're set apart to glorify him through your work. That means your job is not less godly than my job. And what you're doing tomorrow, it's different, but what you're doing tomorrow at 11 a.m. can bring God as much glory as what I'm doing this second. I believe that because that's biblical. We do all our work for the glory of God. We have different jobs. We glorify God in a different way, but the, the aim of our work is exactly the same. And so when we do our work for God's glory, all that other stuff I mentioned, it comes into play. In a theology of work, we'd want to talk about all that. I'm just talking about the calling to work itself is its means to glorify the Lord. That's what I'm talking about today. But we could do a whole thing on being a witness at work. We could do a whole thing on loving your neighbor on the job. We could do a whole thing about integrity in business and representing the Lord in our character as a reflection of Christ on the job. We could talk about all that. That's all good. That's all true. That's all important. But that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm saying that work in and of itself, it's it, your calling to go to your job tomorrow or this afternoon, whatever, you know, if you're working at home, whatever it is, your job is to be lived with a vision that I am called to this for the glory of God. 
Martin Luther, who, uh, you know, the reformer Martin Luther, he was a huge champion of this. And this is one of the things that was recovered in the Reformation that oftentimes is overlooked. But one of the things that was covered in the Reformation was to obliterate the clergy-laity distinction in terms of the value of work. There's still, Protestant churches still have clergy, uh, still have pastor, elders, pastors, whatever. But, but there was a, to say that one is spiritual and valuable and the other's less valuable, one of the goals was to do away with that because that's not a biblical idea. And this is what he said. He said, if we think about the matter aright, he said, the entire world would be full of service to God. Not only the churches, but also the home, the kitchen, the cellar, the workshop, the field of the townsfolk, and the farmers. He's saying, man, the whole world should be alive with people working for the glory of God, and we should be able to see service to God when someone does their job intentionally seeking to honor God, grateful for what Christ has done for them, living in the power of forgiveness and the joy of investing their life for his glory. And if you grab, if I grab this biblical vision, it is a game changer on Monday morning. It is a game changer. And because you spend more money, more money, more time is what I meant to say, because you spend more time on your job or being a... um, a homemaker, if that's what you are, or as a student, if that's what you are, you spend more time doing that than anything else. And that's why the idea that this goal of life here, which had vocation, permission, which is a calling to serve the Lord and receive his gifts, and prohibition, that's why we don't want that out of order. And just, we got the prohibition part, but nobody knows what they're doing and why they're doing it. That's why we want to be balanced, even as we see the original creation, what God's plans were. Okay, so what was this calling to work? I don't have a lot of time to develop this out, but I want to develop and give something, some very specific examples as we leave. What is the calling to work? Well, verse 15, it is to work Eden and to keep it. One of the things I didn't mention, which maybe made the argument sound weak and not really make a lot of sense, one of the things I failed to mention was that when work and keep are used in the Old Testament, together, it always speaks of priestly service. And so when I said Adam was a priest, I pulled that out of a hat. But I got it from this language, that in the Old Testament, when it says work and keep, that was always the language of the priest's work in the temple, and then the keeping was the guarding and protecting the tabernacle or the temple from the profane entering. So those words are used there. So that's part of the spiritual nature of the work that, uh, that Adam's doing here. Okay, what does work and keep mean? Work means to cultivate, the verb work here means to cultivate, to nurture, to labor. Actually, it can even mean to worship in some, some instances. Uh, it is an act of worship. But it's the idea of when he says in verse 28 of chapter 1, be fruitful and multiply, that's the word idea for work. It is what do you do that, that is fruitful, that is developing, that is building. I'm going to give a lot of examples, but right now I'm just talking about generally. Keep here relates to guarding or protecting. And so Adam's great failure to keep is when he lets a snake in the garden. He should have been, as the priests were, keeping the profane out of the holy, he should have been looking for any entrance of something like that and should have beheaded a talking snake on first sight. He didn't keep the garden, and that was the problem. He didn't keep. Keep means protect. So work is, what do you do? So here's what Rick Phillips, uh, in a great book, this is for guys, called Masculine Mandate. But in that, he talks about work for men or women. This applies. And this is what he says. To work, the verb work here, means to labor to make things grow. Nurturing, cultivating, tending, building up, guiding, and ruling. The verb to keep is to protect and to sustain progress already achieved. It's guarding, keeping safe, watching over, caring, and maintaining. So here's what it means. The word work is planting. The word keep is trimming, maintaining. The word work is sales. The word keep is service, maintaining the accounts. The word work is cooking, preparing a productive meal. The word keep is washing the dishes so we maintain what we've already created. Do you get the difference? It is producing and it is protecting or maintaining. So how does this apply in our work? Okay, I want you to think about your job if you work outside the home first. Think about this word work. When are you doing this? When are you fulfilling what God has called you to do? A lot of situations. When you're hiring someone, if you're in that role. When you are making a sale, if you're in that role. When you're installing whatever you install, 
whatever you install, whether it's high-tech installation or whether it's very low-tech installation, when you install something, you are being fruitful, you are building up, you are cultivating. When you are writing code, if you're a computer person, when you are teaching students, you are building them up, you are molding, you are cultivating, you are nurturing their minds. Uh, When you are creating a graphic design, You're creating something as an image bearer. When you're laying out a new initiative for the staff, if you're in a management role and you're telling everybody, this is the new initiative, these are our new goals, this is what we're doing, that's this verb work. when um, When you are helping someone that works for you grow in productivity because your role as a manager is to make them a fruit bearer, to make them successful, Christian or non-Christian, they're an image bearer, and your your, your role is to help them be successful. That's your primary calling, really, in that role, to represent Christ, obviously, as well as you do that. So when you do that, when you are helping grow in productivity, when you do that, you're not just doing your job, you're fulfilling a sacred calling to work the garden. You're fulfilling a sacred calling. Now, in your job, what is this word keep? Well, it is maintenance. So if you are cleaning the shop, if that's part of your job, if you're cleaning the shop, if you're organizing the files, meaning computer files, paper files, I don't know if people use those anymore, but uh, if you are organizing the files, if you are auditing the books, that's keeping, that's maintenance. If you are doing paperwork, now, there's salespeople in the room that when I said that stuff about work, they were like, yep, that's for, before the fall. Paperwork came after the fall. That's the maintenance. Now, you need to see that not only the sale, and then I drop it, and I'm done, and I'm, so I'm not really that great of an employee because I don't really service and don't bring satisfied clients and customers. Ultimately, I just get them in the door. That, that note, you, work is the sale, maintaining the sale and whatever that looks like in your job. That is the paperwork involved, all that, that's keeping. That's keeping. Leading through a reorganization, that's keeping. Providing security. If you're in a job that provides virtual or even physical security, that's the verb. It's guard or protect. I understand we're not talking about the Garden of Eden, but that is a role of work that we are to protect. You are fulfilling a sacred calling. When you are doing maintenance of some sort on equipment or you are maintaining the server, I don't know what that means, but I get emails that the server will be going under maintenance from 2 a.m. to 5 a.m. And I always say, why are you emailing me? I'll be asleep when the server is going. But somebody is up, I guess, at 2 to 5 a.m. maintaining. That is keeping, your, that is protecting, that is maintaining. That's not just something I had to do. You should be viewing that as that's part of what I'm created by God to do, and it brings God glory when I do that for his glory with a grateful heart in joy for the glory of God and to love and serve others. That's why this is so important. What if you are a stay-at-home mom? Whatever you do that is nurturing and building, that's the verb work. That's the word work. So if you're reading to your child, that's work. If you are playing with your child, when you are preparing a meal, that's what's in view here. When you are decorating or beautifying your home, when you are teaching and instructing your children, which when they're little happens all day long, it could be teaching them things of the Lord. It could be teaching them how to tie their shoes. It could be teaching them how to pick up their toys. It could be teaching them something much more uh, detailed and profound about life as they get older. But when you are doing that, you are molding a mind. You are shaping. You are bringing fruitfulness into their lives. Um, When you are uh, shopping for food or necessities, I said in food necessities, you, you can talk about that as a couple, what other shopping would count under that. Uh, just make sure you stay. If you're staying within your budget, let's say that, and buying what the family needs, that is fruitful, and that is, that is uh, helping your family thrive. That is building up. That is cultivating. That is nurturing as well. So, so it's not just I got to go to the grocery store. And I just got to go through and, you know, just do the thing with, with zero vision. I dread it. I hate it. Maybe, you can't, maybe I've got a limited budget. It's such a pain. I don't feel like doing this. Maybe you don't, if you don't like it. But no, you are building. You are working. 
You are shaping lives for the glory of God. You are feeding and preparing. You are doing work that is fruitful so that the home is, uh, is, is fruitful and is multiplying. So when you do those things, when you take your kid to piano lessons, because you are, you are helping your child be developed, anything in the level of development, productivity, fruitfulness, and this word can mean worship as well, I said. We're, do, we're to do that with a heart of worship for the glory of God. When you do that, you're not just driving to piano lessons. You're not just buying groceries. You are working the garden. You are doing what God created you to do. And he is pleased when we do that by faith. What about keeping? If you are a stay-at-home person and you have children in the home, you're changing a diaper. That's maintenance. That's maintenance. Survival. When you are cleaning the home with or without worship music, you can do that for the glory of God. You are keeping, you are guarding, you are ordering. God orders his universe. You are ordering the home. When you're doing the dishes, that's an example. You are keeping. You know, it's interesting. It used to be called housekeeping. And now that's looked as something that's not dignified. And yet Psalm, uh, Psalm 121 tells us God is the keeper. To keep is to imitate God. To keep is what Adam was called to do in paradise. We dare not view keeping of the house as a minimized or not a dignified or a highly honored vocation. It's to be a highly honored vocation because it directly imitates God, who is the keeper of Israel and never slumbers and never sleeps. And because it is the very calling, that word is used in the garden. Now, we don't use that word anymore. But when you are keeping an environment, keeping your home, you're, you're fulfilling a calling before the Lord. When you're doing these things, when you are guarding your children, when you are protecting them from various kinds of harmful influence that could come their way, you are keeping. When you are caring for your family's health and you're taking your child to the doctor or to the chiropractor or to whoever you, I know there's options on this nowadays. So whoever you take your kids to or the dentist or whatever you're doing, you are maintaining, you are keeping their health. You're not just doing some meaningless chores that nobody notices. You're honoring the Lord by doing what he created you to do. And if you do it intentionally for his glory, he receives great worship from that. Let's not leave out the students. Working, what is fruitful? What is developmental? What is this idea of cultivating and nurturing? Well, it's whatever you're doing to learn. So if you're a student, when you are reading, you're not just getting through an assignment, but you're to do that for the glory of God, developing your mind, even if it's something you're not interested in. I could be at the first of the class. I could, I could be the first guy to join you in saying, I'll never use this in real life. Okay, Algebra 2, anybody? I, I, I can, and I always offend math teachers when I say stuff. I could be at the first of the line. I've made those jokes, but that's a very inappropriate way to look at it, and I wish I'd looked at it differently when I was young. I just look at what's relevant for life. Developing my mind and learning, and learning to think logically, even if I don't work equations my whole life, that is developing me so that I can serve the Lord, and it's, what, it's the task God has given me today. And so by the sweat of my brow and by the thorns and thistles, I need to get in there and ask Jesus to help me and do it for his glory, to worship him. So whatever you are learning, uh, when you're doing your homework, when you're listening to a lecture in history class, when you're doing a lab experiment in your uh, chemistry class, when you are doing homework, this is work. This is what God created you to do, that verb. When you are creating a work of art, when you are learning a piece of music for choir or for band, when you are learning to throw a curveball, maybe that makes it in there. If, you're, if part of your school day is playing baseball for your school team, whatever, maybe we could count that. You're learning how to throw a curveball. You are learning. You are working. When you're writing a speech, when you're memorizing lines for the school play, when you're participating in a school service project, all of these are things of cultivating, building, nurturing for the glory of God. How do you keep as a student? When you're reviewing what you've learned, when you're going over your notes, it's maintaining what's been created. It's the trimming of the bushes, or it is, in this case, it is studying for a test. It's preserving and maintaining what you have been exposed to. To my shame, I did not have that vision 
a lot of times as students. I had, I just got to get a good grade on the test, so what do I need to know for the test? And let's just do that. I didn't try to maintain what I learned. So I studied the night before always, crammed it in my head, took the test, and then walked out and couldn't tell you any of it anymore. And that's why my entire 12 years and then my college, it's all a blur. I don't know. I, I'm sure I learned something. Uh, I can read. I'm doing that here. But, uh, but I didn't maintain what I learned. I didn't keep. I just tried to make the sale. That's the guy who makes the sale and then isn't good in servicing the account. So change that now. Whenever you are doing, whatever you're maintaining, whenever you're organizing your work, you're not just doing schoolwork. You are fulfilling a sacred mandate and calling as an image bearer of God to work and to keep. Here's the application for this message. It starts as soon as we walk out of here. Again, we could have preached a lot of messages on work. We'd have talked about diligence. I could have given a whole message on diligence. I could have given a whole message on being a witness. I could have been a whole message on being a servant. But this message is about having a different vision for your work that comes from the creation of the world. The way God ordered his universe is to dictate how we understand our universe, not how the world who doesn't know God believes the universe is created. So it's a change of attitude. It starts as we walk out of here. It it applies to your marriage. This all applies. We could take work and keep and do marriage. We could do parenting. We could do friendships. We could do church, evangelism, and maturing discipleship. All this works in every area you're in. So we could do it there too. But I just want to talk about what is your job? You're a student. You are a homemaker, a stay-at-home mom. You are a Uh, you have some job, part-time or full-time in the marketplace. What is your attitude toward your job? That is the issue. Because what's at stake there is worship from our heart. Do whatever you do heartily for the Lord. And so when the alarm goes off tomorrow, I believe the Lord wants to give us a different vision, a lofty vision, a vision of why we were created, how we bear his image, how we work, and how somehow, there's some mystery here, but when we're doing our work, that somehow that goes up as glory to God because we're fulfilling a calling that he gave us. Not that you thought up. He built the garden. He put the plants there. He put the man in there and said, here's your job, work and keep. You have a calling. You have a calling in your job tomorrow. And it may not be what you're going to do the rest of your life, but it's what you're doing tomorrow. And so let's ask the Lord to open our eyes, to give us great vision, great faith, knowing that what we're about is fulfilling a sacred calling. And the gospel makes all the difference here. Jesus doesn't change work. It's still difficult, but Jesus changes the worker. He gives us a purpose and a vision for our lives. He forgives us where we're weak. He transforms our attitude by the Holy Spirit. Makes all the difference. So that's the response. As we go, let's ask the Lord to give us his vision for what we put our hands to. Let's pray. You've been listening to a message from Grace Church. For more information, visit our website or write us at podcast at gracechurchfrisco.org. Thank you.